Thank you again for joining me on this episode of the Freed Thinker Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Tyler Vela. In this episode, we're going to continue going through our exposition of the Book of Judges using a redemptive historical uh, and uh, historical grammatical hermeneutic. So I hope you enjoy this episode as we continue through the Book of Judges, starting in Chapter 6 with the Midianite and the Gideon Cycle. Enjoy the show. Starting in chapter 6, we begin the Midianite and the Gideon cycle. Now, with Gideon, the cycle that that happens is a big downward step uh, within the disintegration uh, of, uh, of Israel and that downward spiral that uh, we've been talking about that forms the book of Judges. Um, this is the first time that Israel's appeal to Yahweh. So, right, so they, they the, the chapter starts out, they've done evil in the sight of the Lord. The Lord hands them over to Midian, right? It's following that, that paradigmatic um, uh, cycle that we talked about a couple episodes ago. Uh, as the, as the measuring stick, as the rule for for how we how we evaluate these these judge cycles as it goes through the rest of the book. Now, um, th- so so it goes through those normal aspects of it. But this time, uh, Israel's appeal to Yahweh is actually it. It there, there's an there's an intermediate step that happens, and Yahweh actually gives them a stern rebuke rather than immediate assistance, right? So in the past, they've cried out to God, and God immediately raises up a deliverer. Well, in six eight, we're told that the Lord sent a prophet to the sons of Israel and said to them, "Quote." This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. It was I who brought you out of Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery, and so on and so forth. And so he gives them this rebuke. At the very end, it says, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live, but you have not obeyed me. So we get this, we get this rebuke uh, that, that happens uh, before the raising up of the judge. Israel will we'll also see in this cycle at the very end, um, we see that we, again, we see this, we see the cycle kind of to, uh, swirling the toilet bowl as it goes and getting worse and worse. And at the end of this cycle, we'll actually see that Israel ends up in worse shape than when it started. So um, if you think of it like a downward spiral, the ending point is, is lower than where it started. So it's doing this downward progression, um, uh, as it goes. So there, the, at, the, at the end, there's no return to peace like in the paradigm. Um, there, there, then, and we'll see that there's more major significant flaws in, in Gideon, in the, in the judge. Uh, so so in, starting in, in the narrative in, in, in 6.1, uh, we see that the oppression is described in more detail. 
So in verse 2, we see uh, the, the power of Midian prevailed against Israel. Because of Midian, the sons of Israel made themselves the dens which were in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. For wherever Israel had sown, the Midianites would come up with the Amalekites and the people of the east and march against them. And so um, season after season, there's no harvest because the Midianites are plundering them over and over and over again. Um, and so they're, they're, they're losing out on their harvest as it goes. And they're, so they're going, getting into deeper and deeper poverty, poverty. They cry out to Yahweh again. The cry seems to not even be true repentance um, because we'll see as we go, especially at the end of this chapter in verses 25 to 32, that they continue to worship Baal, at Baal cult sites. Um, like the one that belonged to Gideon's father. So instead of immediate deliverance, a prophet again is sent to rebuke the people for their breach of covenant and their continued sinful behavior. Uh, the call of Gideon is interesting as well. It shows God has a little bit of a sense of humor. There's some some irony in the call that happens. Um, we see that Gideon, when when the Spirit of the Lord or the angel of the Lord is coming uh, to, to find Gideon, um, uh, the, the angel Lord comes and sits under the oak that was at Ophrah, uh, which belonged to Joash the Abirzite, uh, as his son Gideon was beating out the wheat in the wine press in order to save it from the Midianites. So he's he's in a wine press, right? Basically, a hole, a big hole dug in the ground, and he's hiding the wheat from the Midianites as he's threshing it. But the Lord says when he comes in verse twelve. He says, uh, the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, the Lord is with you, valiant warrior or mighty man of valor. Uh, so there, there's, this, there's this kind of irony. It's almost said tongue in cheek, like as he's hiding and, and cowering from the Midianites, oh, mighty man of valor. Like it's, it's, it's actually a little bit of, of a rebuke in, in the way that he's called. His name, Gideon's name actually comes from the root verb gada um, that means to hack or to break in pieces. Uh, but he is a, a fearful and a reluctant man, as we'll see over and over again. So there's some irony there as well. Uh, there's overcoming oppression um, in, in Gideon's response. We, we see that he is he acts in fear. Um, and he, does, he, he seems to have ignorance of the real problem in Israel. Gideon doesn't have the spiritual insight um, that, that someone like Deborah had. Um, and, and it's seen in his cynicism and his view of how God had treated the nation. So um, he seems to blame God for their troubles, right? So in verse 13, Gideon said to the angel of the Lord, Oh, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened? And where are all his miracles, which our fathers told us about saying, Did the Lord not bring us out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and handed us over to Midian. Um, and so he, he seems to think the problem was with God, not with Israel. Gideon doesn't seem to understand. And he, and he also attempts to evade some of the responsibility uh, after the Lord uh, calls him to deliver Midian, right? So he, he answers, you know, oh, Lord, how am I to save Israel? Behold, my family is the least in Manasseh, and I am the youngest in my father's house. It's his way of saying, I am the smallest of the smallest of the small, right? Because he claims to be the youngest, He's from the weakest clan, and it's in the smallest tribe, right? Manasseh is the smallest tribe. It's one of the half tribes uh, of Israel. Uh, Manasseh and Ephraim make up, essentially, they constitute the tribe of Joseph, uh, but they're the tribes of Manasseh and Ephraim. Um, and Manasseh is the smallest of those. And so he is he is the youngest from the weakest clan from the smallest tribe, right? He's trying to say that I'm, I'm nothing, right? <laughs> There's, how am I supposed to deliver Israel? I'm, I'm a nobody. 
Um, and so he requests for a, a he asks for a sign, right? And th- and this and this pattern is going to continue where Gideon, who is a fearful man, uh, continues to need reassurance at every step. Uh, and even then, it won't really always mean that he's going to be faithful, right? So so we're seeing this this degradation from the pattern of the bold and courageous uh, judges that had come before him. Um, we, we see uh, this, this interesting dichotomy between the two altars uh, in chapter 6. Um, so after this encounter with, uh, with the Lord, he builds an altar to Yahweh. Um, we're, we're told, uh, we're told that in, um, uh, sorry, in verse 25 or 24, uh, that Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and named it, the Lord is peace. And to this day it's, uh, it is still in Ophrah of the Abezir, Um, and so, uh, so he, he builds this altar, um, which is a little bit of identity of the angel of the Lord, right? So typically in, in Old Testament theology, from a Christian perspective, when we see this angel of the Lord show up, um, this really uh, there, there's a lot of there's a lot of work that's done on this and a lot of speculation about what this is. Um, and typically, at least from a Christian perspective, this is some type of theophany. The angel of the Lord that shows up is, is some type of manifestation uh, of God. Some will actually say it's what's called a weophany or a Christophany. Weophany from the Greek word weos for son. Um, that this is an early manifestation, not a full incarnation, but an early manifestation uh, of the son of God, uh, uh, of Jesus coming in the pre-incarnate Christ. Um, so, so you have a couple of hints there, but he, he builds this altar to Yahweh. Um, here, having had this experience with the angel of the Lord. He's commanded then to tear down the altar to Baal that his father had erected, right? So so we're, we're, we're told basically that his father, so remember the people are crying out, they're saying, uh, they're, you know, they, they want the Lord to deliver them. But remember I said it wasn't really true repentance. They still have these altars to Baal. They're still worshiping these false idols. And and Gideon is told to go tear down um, the altar that his father has erected, right? His own family is worshiping Baal. And he has to make a choice between, uh, between Yahweh and his people and his father and his people in that regard. Gideon goes, he gets a couple of people and he goes and he tears it down, but we're told he tears it down at night um, because he's too afraid of his father's household, right? So it's still a sign of fear. So even when he goes and he tears apart this altar, uh, he does it out of fear. The town's response then shows the, 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 the real spiritual um, condition. Right, so they cried out to the Lord for deliverance, but what happens when Gideon uh, tears down the altar? Well, when the people were told in verse 28, when the people of the city got up early in the morning, behold, the altar of Baal had been torn down and the Asherah, which had been beside it, right? Asherah is like the concubine of Baal kind of, uh, had been cut down and the second bull had been offered on the altar, which had been built. So they said to one another who did this thing. And when they searched and inquired, they, uh, they said, Gideon, the son of Jaash did this thing. Then the men of the city said to Joash, bring out your son that we, he may die for he has torn down the altar to Baal and indeed he has cut down the Asherah which was beside it and on and on. So they want to put Gideon to death for breaking the altar of Baal, right? 
His father does stand up for him and says, if he is a god, let Baal contend for himself, right? If Baal is really a god, let Baal contend with Gideon and, and Yahweh um, is, is essentially the response um, that, that he gives. So his father uh, does stand up for him, but, we, but this is giving us a big glimpse into the spiritual state uh, of, of Israel and notice that, uh, that even um, his father's contention to protect him is kind of half-handed, right? It's not saying, uh, you know, Gideon was right where we, you know, we need to repent. We've been worshiping the false gods. He basically challenges and says, hey, like, you know, if, if he's going to be judged, let Baal judge him, right? Let's not judge him. Um, uh, uh, Gideon is given a new name, uh, based on that. It's, uh, Jerubbaal, which means let Baal, let Baal contend, um, which is, uh, he stands, again, there's some irony in this, right? There, there's, there's some irony in the fact that, um, there, there's almost this, this, in the name, there's this imploring by the people to let Baal contend, um, but Gideon stands as like this living proof about the impotence of Baal. Like as long as Gideon is alive, it's proof that Baal is impotent, right? He cannot touch the one who tore down the altar of Baal on behalf of Yahweh. Um, and so there's this there's this polemical uh, component that's happening even within uh, the new name of Gideon. Uh, Gideon then goes uh, and and musters uh, the troops so to speak. Uh, he, he has a little bit of struggle with faith here. Um, five times God promises to Gideon that he will save Israel through Gideon's hand. So in 636, 72, 77, 79, and 714 to 15, um, we're told repeatedly that, that Yahweh is telling Gideon that he is going to to, to save Israel by the hand of Gideon, right? I, I'll save Israel by your hand. I'll deliver Israel by your hand, right? God's, God's plan is not ambiguous, right? And Gideon knows what God has promised, right? We see this in, in 636, right? So then Gideon said to God, if you are going to save Israel through me as you have spoken, behold, I am putting a fleece, right? So, so he... He knows what God has promised him, he, he, but he still lacks faith. He still wants God to prove that his word is, is going to stand, right? He still, Gideon is an Eve character here, right? Eve knew what God had said, but she thought, well, you know, it, it's up to me to judge whether or not, uh, you know, God, God, needs to, God needs to prove it to my satisfaction, right? Gideon is basically saying, look, I know what God has promised. He needs to prove it to me, right? Some, sometimes we hear this, the story of, of Gideon in, in terms of guidance, right? So, so I, I, don't, I don't know what God wants me to do, so I'll put out fleece, right? Um, we hear that sometimes in Christian circles. We have to remember the fleece is not an admirable thing, <laughs> Right? This, the, the fact that Gideon has to use a fleece is actually a sign of his lack of faith. It's not about guidance. It's about his, his, his lack of faith and his own fear. These, are, these, are the, these signs that are given to, to Gideon should not be examples to us. They, they're actually negative points in the narrative uh, where Gideon is struggling with his faith. Right? He struggles with fear. Uh, in 7, 3 and, and, and 10, he has a lack of faith demonstrated again by his request for a sign. Um, so the, the key that we see in 636 is where he says, as you have said, again, this is not 
about guidance. This is struggle concerning a lack of faith and assurance. And we see this in, in verse uh, uh, verse 37, where it says, Behold, I am putting a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece only and it is dry on the ground, then I will know that you will save Israel through me and you have spoken. Right? He says, then I will know that you will deliver Israel by your hand as you have spoken. Right? Gideon does not trust the word of God. God has already told him what he wants to do, and he has to have actually the sign repeated twice before he acts, and even then he's still not totally convinced. He doesn't seem to be convinced until the Midianites show more faith than what he has, right? There's there's a little bit of irony that happens in this story uh, when the Midianites uh, seem to understand that Yahweh is fighting for them um, uh, based on his word more than Gideon did, right? So uh, we'll, we'll see that. There's a call to arms. Uh, there's a replacing of, of self-confidence uh, with, with faith um, in, in 7, 1 through 8. Uh, 22,000 people uh, there's this reduction of troops. So 22,000 people left out of fear, right? We, so we, we see 22,000 uh, of the troops uh, basically abandoned because they are, uh, because they are afraid. Um, we, we see that in, in verse 3. Um, 300 of them leave based on how they drink, right? Um, the, the, which is the last thing you want, right? Uh, how, how is this supposed to help um, right, so so Gideon is already struggling with fear, um, and and God basically tells him to winnow down the troops, right? Through through based on who's afraid, they can go, and then um, the, those who drink um, by by um, uh, by bringing their hands um, by bringing their hands to 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 the water, right. Um, the, the the ones who the ones who uh, kneel down to drink um, are, are the ones who, who are sent the, the ones who lap the water like the like a dog um, they, they get to stay um, it, it, it the, the purpose though is to show that victory only comes by God like the the standard is so ridiculous and so many people have left that the victory is only going to come uh, by God and th- there's a confirmation from a Midianite soldier relating a dream. Right, so uh, in in verse fourteen, uh, after after Gideon uh, you know sends a spy and uh, he hears um, uh, this this Midianite telling his other friend about a dream that this this is nothing other than the sword of Gideon the son of Joash a man of Israel God has handed him over to Midian and all of the camp right so the Midianites um, are showing right the, the, this is a common Old Testament theme. Right, the non-Israelite is be showing that they are more faithful than the Israelite. Right, uh, Gideon doesn't believe the word of the Lord. He has to have all these tests and he has to have proof. The Midianite soldier who gets a vision, or, you know, here hears the word of what's happening, he believes it immediately. Right, uh, and and uh, and in response to this, we see um, uh, Gideon worship. This is the last time that this is that there's anything that that is kind of uh, what we would consider orthodox worship that's mentioned throughout the Gideon narrative, um, and this is the response of faith in Hebrews 11 that talks about uh, before the fleece incident, right? So in in 6:34, uh, the spirit of the Lord comes upon Gideon, 
Um, this issue is going to come up when we talk about uh, Saul later. Um, if we get to if we get to the the Samuel books, if I go through the Samuel books, but we we see this. Uh, this issue coming up about, well, what does it mean for the Spirit of the Lord to come upon someone? Does it mean indwelling? Does it mean they're saved? Uh, typically in, in the Old Testament, though, when a Spirit of the Lord comes on them, it's it's empowering them for a certain task, right? It's, it's equipping or empowering them for a certain service. Um, it's not a statement about someone's spiritual condition. So it doesn't mean that because the Spirit of the Lord came upon them, that they are somehow a super spiritual, you know, wonderful person, right? A lot of, a lot of critics will read this and be like, "Oh, look, like Gideon is supposed to be this great example because he, you know, the spirit of the Lord resided on him. He should be this holy, you know, saint." Well, no, that's that's just not what it what it typically means um, in the Old Testament. It's not a conversion, it's not the indwelling of the spirit, right? Non-Israelite prophets, uh, uh, Balaam uh, experienced this in Numbers 24, um, and this is a, a frequent use of the phrase in the Samson cycle, and as we'll see, Samson is is um, well, we'll get to Samson. Um, we, we then see the defeat of the Midianites in 719 to 25. Uh, Yahweh brought chaos into their camp, causing the army to flee. We read that in verse uh, 22. Uh, and when they blew the 300 trumpets, the Lord set the sword of one against another, even throughout the entire army. And the army fled as far as Beth Shittah toward Zererah, as far as the edge of Abel Meholoah. Uh, by Tabath. Um, and so we see uh, that it actually is the Lord that procures the victory, right? There's torches inside of these pitchers so that they're dark. They blow the trumpets, they break the pitchers, uh, and the entire army of the Midianites like breaks out into chaos. The Lord sends the sword among them, and so they actually fight each other uh, and kill off each other as they flee. Um, and the way of victory demonstrates that it's actually Yahweh who won the battle. It's not Gideon and his, you know, 300 men. They really bore witness to the victory uh, of Yahweh. Um, we then see Gideon does have some diplomatic skills in dealing with the intertribal jealousy that, that arises in, in chapter 8, uh, verses 1 through 3, in the aftermath of the victory. Uh, so we read, uh, quote, then the men of Ephraim said to Gideon, what is this thing that you have done to us, not calling upon us when you went to fight against Midian? And they quarreled with him vehemently. But he said to them, What have I done now in comparison with you? Is the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim not better than the vintage of Abiezer? God has handed over to you the leaders of Midian, Oreb and Zeeb. And what was I able to do in comparison with you? Then their anger toward him subsided when he said that. Okay, so what's happening? Ephraim is upset with Gideon that he didn't call them to fight against Midian. Right, they, the, the, he says that they accomplished more in. So, so when 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 Midian flees, right? Basically, he's saying, "Look, I, you know, the Lord. When when I went, the Lord stirred them all up, and they fled into your land, and you got to actually defeat them, right? You got to fight them uh, and and rout them and cut them down, um, even though I led the initial attack. Basically, I drove them into your waiting swords, uh, and so really, you get all the victory." Uh, if if the Gideon account ended in verse three, we would have a much more positive view of Gideon than we do. The problem is that the Gideon cycle continues, and the author is showing us um, really the spiritual condition that Gideon, even though he routed the Midianites, 
ends up bringing more disaster upon Israel. So we see the, the, the disintegration of the character of Gideon in verses 8, 4 to 8, 21. Um, his troops are exhausted, but he pursues the kings of Midian with frenzied determination, right? Likely out of some type of personal vendetta. Um, and, and the kings of Midian are, uh, had, they, right? The kings of Midian had killed his brothers. We're told that they had killed uh, the brother, brothers of Gideon. Um, he's not diplomatic anymore. He's not timid anymore in the way he handles Sukkoth and Penuel, um, who refuse to take sides, right? So in, in, in verses 4 through 17, um, we're, we're told about these tribes of Israel that, uh, that didn't take sides in the battle. Right, so you have to remember. You have to remember. Gideon was was a fearful man. He hadn't actually won any victory on his own, um, and yet suddenly uh, he's vicious uh, and 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 he's and he's determined and he's and he's out for for blood. And the and and he is the first judge to turn the sword against his own people. Right, so so he 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 was so fearful that he couldn't achieve victory without Yahweh basically doing it for him against the actual enemies of Israel. But on his own, he is going to defeat cities within Israel. Right, these these cities are no different than his earlier uh, doubt. Right, so uh, you have to remember the, these cities are are doubting and fearing just like Gideon had. Right, so so he's judging them uh, and, and bringing the sword against them for for basically having the same fears that he had. Right, whereas the Lord showed him compassion, he has no compassion for those who responded in the same way that he responded, and they didn't even have the revelation of Yahweh like he had. Right, so there's no indication of Yahweh's involvement in the account when he when he hacks up uh, when he hacks up these cities when he hacks up Sukkoth and, and Penuel. Um, and, and here he lives up to his name. Remember, uh, his name means something like the hacker, the one who hacks up, the one, the one who tears apart. Um, and so he's really living up to his name, his original name. Um, he, try, uh, he tried to involve his son in the vendetta, uh, but we see kind of a, a generational curse where his son was just uh, as fearful um, a, a, as he was, right? So there, and there's almost this sense where um, in, in, in the terms of his son, uh, his, his son uh, is rightly fearful. His son is, shouldn't um, uh, you know, hack up his own uh, people. And so there's a sense also, again, one of the brilliance of the book of Judges is you have these layers upon layers of, of kind of irony in these cycles where uh, Gideon was fearful to go and, and, and commit the ban uh, against the enemies of God. Uh, and, and that's a bad thing. But we see his fun, son who is fearful is fearful of destroying the people of God. Um, and so there, there is a bit of irony, but he does inherit that fearful disposition of his father. Um, we see the offer of kingship, um, the first offer of kingship that happens in, in chapter 8, uh, 22. The men of Israel said to Gideon, rule over us, both you and your son and your son's son as well, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. Right? They offer him a dynastic rule because he saved Midian. Right? There's, there's a couple problems with this. Again, the, the question is who, the, the, the pervasive question throughout this is the question of kingship. 
who will you serve? Who is your king? It's supposed to be Yahweh, um, but it's showing that, that they keep going after the wrong kings, the wrong rulers. Uh, and we see this expressly as they're offering him, uh, Gideon, a, a very sinful man, um, a dynastic rule. They're saying, not just can you rule over us, but your sons and your sons' sons, right? And they, but they attribute it to him. They say, you have, you have ruled, you have saved us. You have delivered us, right? Um, notice that they, they, they aren't even recognizing that it is Yahweh that had delivered them. Well, um, so there, there's a couple problems uh, with, it, with, with that. So again, um, they're not understanding that Yahweh saved. And we're told this in verse 34. So the sons of Israel did not remember the Lord their God who saved them from the hands of all their enemies on every side. Right? Um, and, and this is following an indictment of, uh, of uh, Gideon and his sons, right? So we see in verse 33, then it came about as soon as Gideon was dead that the sons of Israel again committed uh, infidelity with the Baals and made Baal bereath their God. So the sons of Israel did not remember the Lord their God. Um, God, uh, sorry, Gideon's response to their request for him being king. Uh, Gideon rightly shows that he understands uh, th this This is a good sign for Gideon, right? Remember, we're not completely down the toilet bowl, um, even though we are circling the drain. Uh, Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you. This is verse 23. Nor shall my son rule over you, the Lord, right? Yahweh shall rule over you. Um, and so he he rightly rejects the dynastic kingship. Um, and he, uh, 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 But uh, the problem is, that even though he rejects it, he still acts like a king. So um, he he um, uh, he he still gains a, a lot of wealth. Um, he right. So he says, I, "I would request that each of you give me an earring from the plunder." Right, for they had gold earrings because they were Ishmaelites. And he said to them, we will certainly give them to you. So they spread out a garment and every one of them tossed an earring there from his plunder. The weight of gold earrings that requested was 1,700 shekels of gold. Apart from the crescent amulets, the ear pendants, and the purple robes, which were on the kings of Midian, and apart from the neck chains that were on the camel's necks, Gideon made it into an ephod and placed it in his city, Ophrah, but all Israel committed infidelity with it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and his household. So we see that he gains, uh, he gets very rich. Uh, in verse 30, Gideon had 72 sons who were his direct descendants, and he had many wives, and his concubine who was with him at Shechem also bore him a son, and he named him Abimelech. This, this this is this is like red flag after red flag after red flag, right? So he he gains a harem, right? How many how many how many concubines do you need to have seventy sons, right? Not just children, seventy sons, right? So so even if you get a 50-50 chance son to daughters, which we know that uh, typically uh, the 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 ratio you get a bit more daughters than you do sons, seventy sons. That's at least let's go 50-50, That's at least one hundred and forty children. Uh, that's a lot of concubines. Right? right? Um, to support his harem, he has to have a lot of resources. He has to have basically the resources of a king. He, again, he becomes very, very rich uh, with all those shekels of gold. And again, he names his son Abimelech. Now, for those of you who don't know Hebrew, Abimelech means my father, the king, Abimelech, right? Abi is the son, Melech is king. I, the, my, my father is 
king, or sorry, Abi is father. Melech is king. My father is king. So, so even though he denies being king, he names his son, my father is king. Um, uh, with, with his death, uh, we also see that there's a, a little bit of a struggle for dynastic uh, succession, which is the model of kingship, um, which is uh, not following uh, Deuteronomy 17. Uh, Gideon furthers the downward spiral, the canonization of Israel, right? The mother of Abimelech is a non-Israelite. She's a Shechemite. Um, so she's, that, that most likely is that she's, she's some type of Canaanite. We see this uh, in, in 9.1 where it says, Now Abimelech, the son of Jerubbabel, remember uh, Jerubbabel Baal is, uh, is Gideon's other name, uh, went to Shechem to his mother's relatives, Right, so so she is from she she is from Shechem, um, so she's most likely a Canaanite. Um, he produces right his his ephod. He produces a cult object, which is um, uh, becomes the object of worship. And it seems right. This is it, it's mentioned this way um, that he placed it in in Ophrah, and all Israel uh, committed infidelity there and became a snare to Gideon and his household. Um, so this is not like it became an, an idol after Gideon. It becomes a snare to him and his household. So remember, the ephod was only meant to be worn by the, Levi- the, the Levitical high priest. Um, so this was a priestly task. Right? The ephod is something that the, the high priest was to wear. But Gideon fashions one for himself. So he is making himself out to not only be king, but to be high priest, right? Uh, th- this, this is a, a major problem. Ophrah becomes uh, a place of worship, um, and this facilitates the rapid return of worship to Baal. Remember, this: the whole cycle starts out with him uh, being fearful and destroying the, 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 the high place to Baal. And here at the very end, um, he has moved the, the high place to basically the center of the city, um, for them to commit idolatry. And so this facilitates a, a rapid return to the worship of Baal, makes it actually more central, right? Orpha is, uh, at the beginning of the episode, is, is the center of clan worship. It's a family affair. And now at the end of the episode, it's the center for national religious apostasy. So remember, the high place was where his father and his clan uh, falsely worshiped the Baal. Now this is all of Israel is committing idolatry following their, their pseudo-king Gideon and his household. Right? So they end up worse off than before. This raises an important question, right? Gideon shows up in the hall of faith in Hebrews 11. How is it that you have this judge who, who ends up actually leading national apostasy by, by worshiping Baal. He worships Baal at the end of his life. How is this person in the Hebrews 11 Hall of Faith? Uh, Block, in, in his commentary of the NAC series, says, quote, In assessing this person, we must not only read the beginning of the story or selectively isolate favorite episodes that support our idealized images. I wish I could see this man only as the author of Hebrew sees him, but I cannot. I must read the story to the end. So the question is, did, did the author of Hebrews not know the whole story? Did they not read the whole story? Right? 
There were parts where he seems to exercise faith, right? This is just like Chronicles. The presentation of David and Solomon is very positive and, and omits a lot of the negative stuff in the Hall of Faith in, in Hebrews 11, even though um, uh, in Samuel, or right, sorry, Chronicles leaves out a lot of the negative stuff. But if you read through uh, the book of Kings, right, there, there's lots of negative stuff that happens there. They're not trying to cover up the, the negative, Right? They assume that everyone knows the negative. They're just trying to set up the picture of what, a, the, uh, of what kind of king Israel needs, what kind of king Israel is supposed to have. So Hebrews, likewise, is exhorting us to the moments of, uh, of great faith, and it's pointing us to the, 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 major, um, the major aspects of when faith is exercised. It's not trying to, to kind of whitewash out the history of the bad stuff. Um, it, look, we know all that stuff. It's just trying to say, here are these moments of uh, great faith. I, ironically, in the in the Gideon story, we have one of the first accounts of uh, someone who uh, a prophet uh, right, the prophet comes to, and he sets himself up as king and priest. He just does it in an illegitimate way. Remember, the question throughout the book of Judges is who should you, who who is the rightful king, um, and we're also seeing who is the rightful priest. Uh, ultimately, we have to remember the the prophets and the priests and the kings all point us to Christ at the end of the story, um, who is the rightful prophet, priest, and king. It's the munis triplex, that, that threefold office where Christ is our priest, our prophet, and our king. Um, and so Gideon tries to illegitimately take two of those offices. Um, now, rounding out um, the, the Gideon cycle, we see uh, Abimelech. Um, really follows the pattern of a Canaanite kingship. We see this in uh, in chapter nine. Um, after Gideon, uh, one expects there to be another judge, right? There should be an if we're following the cycle of judges, there should be another judge, um, but there isn't. Abimelech attempts to seize power without being raised up by God or called by God, right? There's this there's this intertribal rivalry that starts getting worse and worse. Um, the oppressor here is internal instead of external, right? So, so Abimelech actually kind of rises up from Israel um, to oppress Israel, right? Israel's oppressor comes from their own judge. So we see the rise of Abimelech in, in chapter 9, verses 1 through, uh, 1 through 24. Um, he self-asserts his own authority, right? This is the false way to become a judge, um, to become a king. Abimelech tries to gain advantage through the support of his own family in Shechem and the destruction of the sons of Gideon, right? This is not the way that God would have someone become king. Abimelech wants to be king. He strives after being king and he takes it, right? Uh, Jotham, the son of Gideon, escapes the massacre when, when, when Abimelech is going and, and wiping out uh, the rival, the, the other sons uh, of Gideon. Um, and, and he confronts the men at Shechem with what they have done through his through his fable, right? So he tells this fable of the trees, right? The trees are supposed to be stand-ins for the citizens of Shechem. And what they have done, uh, and they've done the absurdity of making a thorn bush, right? The thorn bush is supposed to be Abimelech. 
right? They, so the, the trees have set up this thorn bush as their king, when really the thorn bush or, or the bramble actually believes that he can give shelter to the trees, right, in the shade. Uh, and, and he warns of a fire that will devour the trees if they do not uh, go, go along with it, right? So um, there's this there's this weird, you know, think, think of the trees thinking that this little thorn bush can give them shade and give them protection. Right, but he, but he tells them uh, basically through the the fable that God is going to judge them harshly um, with the family of Gideon uh, and with making Abimelech their king. Uh, in 942 to 49, we see more of Abimelech's character. So he slaughters a thousand people of his own tribe uh, by burning them alive in a tower, um, and 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 from this tower. Uh, he's, he's about to burn down another tower with thousands of people in it. Um, so we, we see, uh, we see um, that, that, he's, that he's basically about to repeat uh, his same, his same uh, viciousness uh, as before. Um, so, uh, so he goes, he's about to burn down another tower. Um, with with lots of people, uh, he's 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 ravaging the land. He's expanding his kingdom uh, for selfish gain. He's not settling the land based on God's commands, right? So there's like like every red flag is is telling us about this uh, this this king. Um, uh, where and, and we see in verse uh, uh, fifty how he dies. Um, so in verse fifty, uh, then Abimelech went to Thebes. Uh, and he camped against Thebes and captured it. But there was a strong tower in the city, of, in the center of the city, and all the men and the women with the leaders of the city fled there and shut themselves in, and they went up to the roof of the tower. So Abimelech came to the tower and fought against it and approached the entrance of the tower to burn it down with fire. Right. So he's going to repeat uh, the same thing. But a woman threw an upper millstone on Abimelech's head, crushing his skull. Then he called uh, quickly to the young man, his armor bearer, and said to him, draw your sword and kill me so that I will, it will not be said of me, a woman killed me. So the young man pierced him through and he died. Um, so Abimelech, we're told, remember, um, there's, this, there's this judgment in this period when someone dies at the hand of a woman. We saw it in, uh, in Judges 4, uh, but we're told expressly uh, by, by this that he dies at the hand of the woman. He, he's, he's trying to stab to avoid the technicality, uh, but the text already, already shows uh, how, he, how he really, I mean, he's, he's dying. Um, uh, she throws the stone, crushes his skull. His armor bearer finishes him off so that it won't be said that he's killed by a woman on a technicality. In verses 9, 56, to 57. Um, we see that he had, gilled, uh, he had killed Gideon's sons on a single stone. Um, and so there's an irony that a single stone hurled by a woman is what kills him, right? Uh, remember the grinding was the, was the daily task for the woman and he's killed by this millstone, this grinding stone. Uh, and so God, we see in verse 56, um, uh, so God repaid the wickedness of Abimelech, which he had done to his father in killing his 70 brothers. God also returned all the wickedness of the men of Shechem on their, on their heads and the curse of Jotham, the son of Jerubbabel came upon them. Uh, and so, um, uh, Yahweh, uh, returns or, or judges, uh, judges Abimelech and his family and, uh, and, uh, the, the, the curse of Jotham, uh, uh to, to destroy the Shechemites comes upon them. Um, when the Israelites become, uh, spiritually, uh, Canaanite, basically God gives them the Kings that they deserve. Right, that that curse is is what gets fulfilled over and over again. When when you become a Canaanite 
and you abandon Yahweh as your rightful king, you're going to get the king that you deserve. The one you want <laughs> is going to be the one that is going to be your downfall. Um, and we see that Abimelech really is the outworking of Gideon's life. While Gideon rejected the kingship, um, he lived like a king. So what do you think that does to Abimelech? Um, he, he tries to rule like a king, right? And this is, this is where we're being shown over and over again. This is not how Israel is to behave. This is not how Israel is to live. This is, this is not the type of kingship that Israel is supposed to have. This is the type of kingship and how kings come about through viciousness and blood, um, uh, through, through, uh, lust for power. Um, this is how the Canaanite kings come to power. Um, this whole cycle is seen as a judgment of God against uh, Gideon uh, and and the rise of his progeny. So, uh, so hopefully uh, you you've you found this illuminating. We'll continue through the exposition of the Book of Judges next time. If you have any questions, concerns, commendations, or condemnations, please feel free to reach out me reach out to me at freethinkerpodcast at gmail.com. Visit the blog at freethinkerpodcast.blogspot.com or come join the discussion at the group page over at Facebook. You can also follow me uh, on YouTube uh, and on Twitter by searching uh, the Freed Thinker Podcast. Thank you so much. Good night and God bless.